Just a quick note before we start. This entire first season of Inspired Business was recorded before the coronavirus outbreak in the UK. Hence, there being no mention of it in the interviews. Thanks. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, and welcome to Inspired Business, the business podcast from the University of Derby. During this series, we are bringing you inspiring stories from across the business landscape in Derby, Derbyshire and beyond. We discuss the issues affecting your business and provide key insights from our guests for you to take away. I'm Toby Bradford, your host for the series. I'm joined by my co-host, business expert, Angela Tooley, who will offer you valuable analysis on the topics we cover. This week on Inspired Business, we're talking to Trevor Williams, who is former chief economist at Lloyds Bank, and he's a visiting professor at the University of Derby. Now, we caught up with Trevor at a very interesting time. It was just before Christmas and just after the general election. So there was a lot of interesting things going on. We did talk about, a bit about Brexit, but we mainly talked about big data, didn't we, Angela? Yes, we did. It was an interesting time. I think one of Trevor's skills, and it comes across very clearly in this interview, is his ability to take really complex global or market issues and make them relevant to you and me and to the local businesses who are listening to this podcast. Because some of the things that that he's talking about, you know, it's quite difficult to sort of understand, well, why is it relevant to me or why should I be bothered about it? And Trevor's very good at doing that. It's a fantastic skill because I really had no idea what big data was or why it should be relevant to business. But he is a lecturer. He delivers speeches and um, talks to various audiences. So he knows how to get his, his message across. And he certainly helped me understand that. Absolutely. And I think one of the key takeaways for me is that actually the world is always changing and we should just accept it and rather than fight it. And... You know, in things like Brexit, for example, it doesn't really matter what side of the fence you are on. The reality is these things are happening. You know, these things have happened. Decisions have been made and actually we just need to get on with it. It's that British sort of spirit and things like that. But ultimately, particularly SMEs, I think we're in a pretty good place to deal with whatever is, you know, whatever arises, both from UK policy, European policy, but also changes that are happening at a global scale as well uh, in terms of sort of changing political and market uh, and regulatory conditions, for example. Uh, Angela, we'll be back later for our analysis but for now let's hear what Trevor has to say. I'd like to welcome Trevor Williams to our Inspired Business podcast. Trevor would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you very much indeed Toby. My name is Trevor Williams. I'm a visiting professor at the University of Derby and I am an independent economist, author and broadcaster in some respects but only on the visual. I do lots of TV programs, but solely geared to business. Okay. Um, more recently, I've been doing lots of stuff with Chinese TV. Chinese TV. Wow. A lot of business going on in China, <laughs> there, isn't there? There is. Yeah, yeah. So as a consultant, 
What do you do? What, what, what's your Consultancy work is mainly around doing presentations for private sector firms, mm-hmm. be they insurance companies, banks, auditors, accountancy firms, legal entities, housing, a whole sorts of businesses that are interested in what's going on in the economy, what's going on in the world. That's mainly what the consultancy is about. Uh, analysis, you do consultancy works with an analysing... Um... It's analysing the data that's out there. It's uh, understanding the way that the global economy is going. It isn't uh, so much necessarily macroeconomic forecasts. It's about understanding the underlying issues that might be driving some of what we see on the surface. So it can be quite detailed in some uh-huh. parts. It may be about technology, it may be about housing, it might be about within the housing sector, it might be about real estate. Yeah. We may focus on residential. So it can be very detailed or it can be very high level. So mega trends around global changing demographics, for example, no. and spending habits around the world. Well, it's always very important to know what those are. One of the the big phrases, of course, is big data. That's one of the things you work on a lot and how big data can be used. Could you just explain quickly what big data is? Well, one of the things that I did when I was the chief economist at Lloyd's was to manage a large team of economists. And we looked at a whole range of issues facing the bank within the context of the UK economy. And what we thought was that the bank has access to the data of about 17 million customers. And with that data set, we could get a better understanding of the way the economy was performing by analysing this data in an anonymised way to see, for example, what the spending habits were, how they use their Mm -hmm. credit cards, and whether in various parts of the country they are spending more than in other parts of the country, and whether or not in some parts of the country people were getting more job seekers allowance than in other parts of the country. And that would tell us quite a bit about the way that the UK economy was performing in aggregate, but also about a lot more detail on the way that consumers were behaving and that would help maybe to inform the bank to make better decisions about where it concentrated on some of its lending and also where some of the risks were and one needs to better understand one's customers in order to be able to better meet their needs and wants so that may have also helped the bank to decide on what sorts of loans it should think about doing and so on so the aim of the exercise was to just become more efficient and to respond more quickly to the changing nature of our customers. And in this technological age, it is changing very quickly. There's there's lots of more information coming out, there are lots more ways of gathering information. Absolutely, Toby. And the reason why we wanted to focus on that was because increasingly the technology that was gathering all of this data also enabled us to better analyse the data, to better slice and dice it, and to delve deeper into where tastes differ across the range of customers that we had. So it was a combination of the data, but also of the technology and the computing power, which gave us better analytical tools. And the question then was, how could we use those analytical tools to draw what I would want from it, which was economic conclusions. That that must be that when you when you're first looking at that sort of information, it's like 
yeah, we've got a lot of information here. What do we want to get out of it and how do we get it? I mean, but that's that's what you do now is it as a consultant. Now you've moved on from Lloyd's. A combination of, of both of those things. So at Lloyd's, clearly one of the reasons why I was unique and the team was unique was that we understood the power of this data. Mm. And we were maybe one of the firsts of the economists that thought that this will be useful in helping us to make better decisions. So yes, absolutely. And have continued to do that in a variety of of roles outside the bank. I mean, the data, in a sense, doesn't matter. It's how you use the data that matters and what your mindset is about, what you're trying to achieve. And and information is just information. To turn it into knowledge, you have to then make it useful. Well, you've got to understand it first. Absolutely. Yeah, you've got to know what you're looking for and the patterns in the data. You also need to understand what it is telling you. And this is where the economic training comes in because I'm looking for economic signals. Mm-hmm. And by I, I know what I mean by that. So what do you mean by that? Or is that that kind of uh, bespoke information that you don't want to share out? Well, part of it is that the information from different firms is bespoke. It's generated by their customers and so it's unique to them. And so that information may help them understand better responses to their businesses. But then, on the other hand, if you've got a broader context that they are operating in, you also know how they may or may not conform with the average of the norm and where they differ and where their advantages and their disadvantages are. So that's one aspect of it. It is, as you quite rightly pointed out, Toby, it is very bespoke. It isn't a secret for me to say that what I do is based on the knowledge that I have accumulated over the years and my economic training. So there's, it, that's not something that you can easily transfer to others. And this is why what I do is, in my view, unique, because it is based on what I do with it and the conclusions that I draw. And hopefully the conclusions that I may draw will chime with the user and their view of what it's telling them. So I need to convince them that we are giving them information that they can use to help do whatever it is that they do better. What sort of companies do you work with? Obviously, you have experience with banking, but what sort of companies do you work with now? As you say, my background is banking. But within banking, remember, it was not just financial services firms that would bank with a bank. Lots of companies bank with banks. Manufacturers bank with banks. Within manufacturing, you've got pharmaceuticals companies, you've got car companies, a whole range. Um, And then, of course, there's a services uh, side of things as well. So it may be insurance companies, it might be legal, it might be accountancy. All of those are firms that would want to know how the economy is changing and what our view is of the changes that are taking place in the economy. They would not necessarily be generating data, their own data, that we can analyse. But of course, as I've said, what I do is not just about analysing data. It's also about a broader understanding of some of the trends that are driving changes in the economy on a on a daily basis. Most large firms these days generate data about their customers. And you see around you all the time, of course, supermarkets are a prime example. They have loyalty schemes and they gather the data on what their customers are spending things on and they use that data to then offer them deals on the things that they're spending things on and they offer big discounts because they know that they'll sell more of those particular products and therefore they can reduce the average prices of each of those products and by selling more of those products they won't diminish the margin of profits that they make on these products. That's the straightforward mm-hmm. economics, but also straightforward business sense. Um, the more you sell of a product, the less you may be able to charge on average for each of those products. 
It's called economies of scale. They'll be able to make more of them at cheaper prices and customers benefit from that. But in that context, what sort of expertise could you give, say, a supermarket that may take them to the next level, which may make them look in a different way? Is that how you'd work in that sort of situation? Well, the big data that would be generated, there's two aspects to that. On the one hand is the data they generate. And let's be clear here what I mean by big data. I'm specifically referring to the data which has been generated by the technology that we have around us today, which enables firms and businesses to capture what their customers are doing and what enables those who may lend to people, again, customers, they can capture that data and analyze it in a variety of ways based on the huge amount of computing power that we now have and by the different nodes and opportunities that there is to capture the data and analyze it. Uh, so they're big data sets. In that sense, we have to be clear that there's two aspects to it. One is, uh, do you at the aggregate level uh, look at this data, but then at the, the level of the firm, how can they use this data? And it's almost two different things. So at Lloyd's, for example, uh, we would have, I don't know, let's say for argument's sake, a 15% share of the direct debits uh, that are used with credit cards that pay out of accounts instantly. So it isn't credit card. It's a debit, debit card. card. Yeah. So on the debit system, for example, you know this is what people are spending instantaneously. It's coming out of their account and they're not thinking about, oh, I can pay for this later on. They know it's, it's been paid for now. And what I would probably want to look at is if we had a large number of retail outlets, it might be useful to at the aggregate level, see what proportion of the amount of spending on those debit cards was being done in supermarkets. Right. Because that would give us a sense of the amount of spending that might be done in terms of the average food spend out of your typical consumer's total spend. Yeah. We may then relate that back to the weight of food in the RPI, uh, retail prices index, yeah. because that gives us a sense of how much inflation is generated by changes in food prices. But it may well be that a better way of thinking about the information may be this, which is that we would know which retailer it, the card was used in. Now, we would never release that information to each of those individual retailers, but we could, at the level of the bank, maybe think about so... If we break them into two broad categories, which are, say, top end and lower end, we may, look, we may, we may think Morrison, Lidl and Aldi are different to Waitrose and, and others. And we may say, so in an economic sense, are people spending more on high end or are they spending more which may be deemed value for money outlets? And over time, that may tell us about spending habits and it's clear that historically, it seems to me that the data that I was looking at at the time told me that increasingly UK consumers were looking for more value for money and they were substituting the spending they were doing at the IN stores for some of what was deemed the lower end stores. And that's because a number of things were going on in the world at the time, which is that 
In reality, your Aldis and your Lidls were offering value for money because the calorific content of the food they were produced were not actually that different to the Waitroses and the Sainsbury's and the Tesco's, actually. It was branding that was the difference. And so people and typically spent in these other stores because they've always spent in those other stores too. So there's a bit of inertia there. They didn't switch very easily. But as the economy slowed, people started looking for value for money. And maybe they realized that there actually wasn't much difference between the food that they were getting in terms of the quality and the content between these outlets. And so the Aldis and the Lidls increasingly took a larger market share. So circumstances in the sense of, of made people become more sophisticated in the way they shop. Yes. And also they wanted more value for the money that they were getting in because, you know, growth in pay was slow as the economy slowed and people just wanted more bang for their buck. And so one of the aspects that the big data was telling us was there was changing market shares taking place between different supermarkets. But we could look at this different parts of the country too and we could see how different areas were performing relative to the average and what regions and nations of the UK were doing relative to each other. So that could give us a good sense of the geographic spending pattern too. And that might enable us to make decisions about, you know, where some of the branches might be located, what sort of offers you may put in some of those areas and so on. That's using big data to make concrete decisions. It could also be informing us about where the risks of our book were with regards to potential corporate failures and so forth. And so it's all incredibly useful information. But there are other instances, too, where that sort of data could be gleaned. And a firm, increasingly in the future, you may think about this. So surveys that are done of businesses usually ask those that produce things, what is it that you've made? What is it that you've sold? But in an era of big data, you may just simply look at who's bought what they've sold rather than what they say they've produced and get a better sense of actually what's used. And that would give us a better sense of actually what's demanded of various goods and services in the economy and increase our sophisticated knowledge of what's going on and therefore maybe inform a better decision making. So Trevor, in terms of uh, big data, when did it change from data to big data? That's a great question, Toby. And I think that data's always been around, but the huge amount of information that we now have has been generated by the globalization of the internet, And remember, that's only been around, what, 20 years, with also the acceleration in data generated by our iPhones and by our communications tools, which means that the spread of information and knowledge now is almost instantaneous. It's also the huge data set which has been generated by the technology which enables us to track what we are doing via our spending habits, via the communications tools that we have, but also by the information which sensors are now transmitting back to businesses who embedded them or embed them in machines that give information back about their condition in the technology which allows these sensors to be able to feed information back to providers uh, of a whole bunch of, of services. And I'd just like to give a few examples of what I mean by that. So Rolls-Royce, for example, can put sensors into all of the aircraft engines that it makes, which will tell them about the condition of those engines and feed it back to a central computer. And therefore, they can monitor the plethora of engines that they've made and sold around the world to know how they're performing, 
when parts need replacing, inform the customers before they may realize that these parts need replacing and effectively become more of a, a service provider than simply a manufacturer. But there's a whole bunch of other industries where this is taking place. So there's going to be an, is an ubiquitousness to the sensors that are being produced in Formula One cars these days. They're able to gather data on the life of the tyre using a whole plethora of metrics about um, how long it's been on the car for, the speed that it's going, the weather conditions, the friction, the heat on the track, the type of track it is, the nature of the track and so forth. And they end up with one metric, which just basically says, how long is this tire going to last? Is it used up 50% of its life, 70%, 80% of its life? And with that, they can strategize. They can make decisions about, ah, so when do we want to bring this driver in to optimize the length of time that we have yet to in this race and whether or not we want to try to go to the end if there's enough life in it given where our relative position on the track and so forth so that tells us it helps to make better decisions well, that's the, the more thing. information it, it, you have and it, this is it, all big data does it's understanding which information you can take and putting it all together into a single strategy and it's it's finding the right information and, and being able to understand that information precisely so uh, there's lots of information being generated, but knowledge is how you use that information intelligently to make better decisions in a variety of ways. In agriculture, for example, you can put sensors in the soil which measure temperature, the condition of the soil. They can inform the centre of that farm when it may need watering. It'll tell them the best time to plant, the best time to pick. It may tell the drones when to go over and water, for example. But more than that, in, again, agriculture, as, a, as one example, I'll come back to other examples in a moment. But in agriculture, for instance, uh, some firms now increasingly put sensors into some of the animals, which monitor when it is... So take cows, for example. When is it best that they are fed? When is it maybe best that you try to breed them? When are they close to calving? And they need to just walk past the Wi-Fi post, which then beams that information back to a central location. And some firms now, increasingly, that's what they do for a living. They're coming up with all of the new ways of analysing the best way of, get, of increasing yields, milk yield, for example, or you know the yield of the crops that may be produced. And so information becomes key to improving efficiency. And so that is across... A whole range of industries from agriculture to manufacturing to biomedics and also to services industries too. We talked about you can do it across insurance sectors. You can the, the range of information and the way that we'd be able to use it is just increasing at an ever faster pace. But it's and that won't change. But it's learning to understand the information is the difficult thing. The, the next step for the farmer having to learn how to analyze that data yes indeed it's, it's becoming a high-tech business and so to your point it, it increasingly requires higher value added it requires more skilled people there'll be more mechanization but look someone has to make the machines mm -hmm. someone has to understand the information better jobs are going to be created yeah. it's incumbent on us as a society to make sure that people are trained for the better jobs so that they're not left behind. And so there are social and political implications from this because some jobs may be lost, but new jobs are being created. Who had heard of data scientists, 
five or 10 years ago. And now it's a growing number of jobs in that sector because analyzing the data becomes more important, but they're well-paid jobs. Mm -hmm. Programmers are much more in demand. People who can fly the drones that are monitoring the drones. Look, there's a whole range of new jobs that are going to be created. And I think there'd be better jobs for society. But what we have to make sure we do is that no one gets left behind. We could talk about football, actually, as another good example of the way that big data is used. So these days, every football, every large football club gathers data almost second by second on every single player on the pitch, what they've, the touches that they've made in the context of whether it led to a goal, whether it led to increased chance of uh, getting a, a shot on goal, because what they're after is winning. Mm-hmm. So if that's the goal, it's all about analysing data to see what's the contribution of every single player towards that. And they've been doing that globally over the last few years. So now lots of these football clubs use that data to decide on who's the best defender. What's the best position? Who do we want? Can we afford them? Given how they can contribute and given our, our, our wage bill and given our ticket prices and given where we are in the league. And so some of the most successful clubs are the ones that have used this data quicker than others and more intelligent than others. I, I cite that example because this is a good example of, of, of Liverpool Football Club, apparently, in the way that they have utilised the data to choose their defenders. But let's think about that for a second. So what it's telling us is that increasingly football clubs may choose people based on how good they are, not necessarily whether they like them, not necessarily whether they look like them. This is something which is much more objective. This is about performance. So you could almost argue that that helps to create an environment where people are judged more by what they do mm. than what others think they are. Anyway, that's enough about football. <laughs> <laughs> what I want to talk about now, just very briefly, is how you got to be where you are. What's your history? People don't know who Trevor Williams is. Well, my background is obviously I from the UK. Uh, my parents are from Jamaica. My background is, you know, normal school, comprehensive didn't go to a grammar school, went to Essex University, did a first degree in economics, did a second degree in economics there, got a job with the civil service while studying for a PhD at Birkbeck. And then effectively, I was covering the relationship between the sort of trade union sector and the government sector and businesses and analysing lots of data about how they could cooperate to to make better economic outcomes. And I worked for the Government Economic Service, shifting between different departments at some point as well. Um, And then I had an opportunity to be speaking at an event and I think the Chief Economist at Lloyds was there at the time. And then there was a job opportunity that arose out of my realising that that person was in the room and they'd, you know, there was a job being advertised there and I applied for this position and got it and um, then spent you know, the next 20-odd years working in the city and became the, eventually became the, the chief economist. I, I think initially I joined actually because I was presenting on issues around using statistical analysis to help to understand the way that for instance, changes in exchange rates could impact different businesses in the UK, given the industry they were in. That's the old-fashioned equivalent of big data then, is it? That's the old, absolutely the old-fashioned equivalent, precisely. Yeah. But that was the route that uh, got me into, into Lloyd's. And I think it was that one of the things I did, for example, was to analyse the way that changes in the economy would impact the bank's default rate, i.e. the amount of bad debt that would arise when the economy turned down. Mm -hmm. And the 
chief economist at the time wanted a, a better sense of that in order to have discussions with the board maybe about what sort of bad debts they would have and therefore the provisions that they'd have to set aside off their book to ride them through that sort of crisis. Mm. Um, and that led to uh, eventually heading up the group economics department and then creating a department on the commercial side that focused on markets and on clients much more than, than in the past. And I set an award-winning team of economists using the data to better forecast the UK economy. Thank you very much for that. But just taking a slight tangent from that, giving something back. I mean, your parents came from Jamaica and one of you work with a couple of charities who... I do indeed. Who, totally, um, yeah. who try and promote people from young black men coming into the city and also young people from deprived Any areas. Any different dis- disadvantaged yeah. backgrounds, absolutely. So there's three key charities that I've worked for. One is uh, Reach Society, which is specifically aimed at young black men from inner cities to give them uh, mentors and role models and to help encourage them to understand the link between education and their career and their future. And also to allow firms that want to recruit for more diverse backgrounds to have a pool of talent from which to be able to do so. So we organise careers, fairs on an annual basis and have a pool of people that firms can effectively recruit from that have the right levels of qualifications and motivation and so forth. I run another charity called Through the Looking Glass with a colleague of mine from Lloyd's, Leslie Wang, uh, which is actually across the country. So we've done projects in Edinburgh and and Leeds and Manchester as well as London, which is to encourage 16 to 18-year-olds that are currently doing A-levels, either in the first or second year, to move out of the relatively deprived environments that they may be in. And we put them into some of the top firms in each of these cities, legal firms, accountancy firms, and others, banks, etc., where they spend a whole week interacting with people from backgrounds that they may not think is ones that is familiar to them. But when they meet people who talk about how they got to where they got to and why they succeeded and what sort of jobs that they did and do, it gives them a better sense that, well, if these people can do it, they're just like me, I can do it too. Um, and we've had some huge successes from those projects. And as I said, you know, we, we've uh, run them in diverse places across the country. Um, we've not done one in Wales, but we've certainly done, as I said, Manchester, Leeds, Edinburgh, we're going to do uh, Glasgow, uh, and we've we've done London uh, for the last seven years. Brilliant. That must give you some real sense of achievement that, you know, you're in a position where you can do something and you are doing something. Yeah, so we basically tell them, look, there's no reason why you can't do it. You know, we bring them into, I don't know, Lloyds of London, and they're given a tour. We bring them into chambers in the city, and they meet people who talk about, you know, what the firm does, what businesses they're involved in, but also how they got to where they got to. And they begin to realise that actually they're all just people just like them, and that if they put the effort in, then they can do it too. And that's, that's a really encouraging thing. It's very satisfying as well to see how people go through these courses and they change and become much more confident. I believe in society. I mean, I, I genuinely think that, um, you know, the worth of people should be judged on what they do and they, what they want to do and, and to give them a chance to, to, to do it. And I actually believe in young people and it's very encouraging to have uh, met so many of them and to see that actually the future's bright, you know, and that we shouldn't write them off. 
huge, huge opportunities that are available to these young adults these days. And I think they should take advantage of it. Now, going back to big data, this economic analysis from big data, is this just for big business or is it just as relevant to SMEs, the small and medium-sized enterprises, as the large corporates? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, actually, Toby. Um, I think it's just as relevant to small businesses because they may want to better understand their niche. You know, where is it that they can make a difference? What is it that they are doing relative to the area that they may be operating in and the opportunities that what they are doing may offer them and their customers and to exploit the opportunities that may exist in the area they're trying to work in and to just get someone in to think about, well, what are we trying to do here? Where is our market? Who can we sell this product to? Who are our potential customers? How well are we doing? And it's very easy to be able to track how well they're doing relative to a subset that they think are their peer group. That's the the important thing, isn't it? Being able to take the wider view as well as exactly what that company is doing isn't it yes it is i mean it's 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 taking it from the micro to the macro you can go from the macro to the micro but you can also go the other way to your point and i think that many smes operate in an environment where they may not be big players yet but they could potentially become big players and they need to understand what the potential is now i'm going to ask you uh, the difficult question now we can't talk to an economist without talking about Brexit. Um, <laughs> we've already talked about football once. It's, it's yeah. Um, and, and now I'm going <laughs> to... You recently used football, like the sex, success of English football teams in Europe and the Allied victory in the Second World War to explain your views on Brexit, globalisation, nationalism and economic isolationism. It's a huge topic, I realise. And we've only got... Well, we haven't got three days or however long it would take to explain it. But can you just give us a taste of your views on that? Well, first of all, I think that Brexit is more an expression of identity. Mm. Who do we think we are? Who do we think we want to be? It's an existentialist question, I think. It's not a pure economic question. Right. Although I think that it may have been has aspects to it which may appear to be economics. I don't think it is in, in because... You know, 90, for what it's worth, uh, 90% of economists would say that bigger markets are better for potential for economic growth. Trade agreements are good things because it allows you to be able to sell your goods into a larger market. And if you're selling your goods into a larger market, you have better profit potential. And it allows you to be able to grow more quickly, to get better incomes, to have higher standards of living. And, and that, that comes from the origins of economic thought throughout history. And it's based on economies of scale and producing goods uh, more cheaply. And therefore, the bigger the market, the better, because things fall in price. People have more opportunities, therefore, to buy some things cheaper and have more money to be spent on other goods and services and so forth. So I think that... Trade deals are good things. Uh, I think that isn't the issue the UK, because most people agree that the idea of Brexit, even for those who are arguing for leaving the EU, is that they'll still want to strike trade deals. So I, you know, I want to be very fair uh, and objective about that aspect of it. I don't think the UK approach to Brexit is an isolationist one, right. to be clear. Yeah. Some may vote for that, but that's not what's going to happen because the leaders of all of the parties agree that 
they want to do deals on trade. Those who want Brexit argue they want to do it from the position of the UK rather than from doing it from within the EU. And so there's a question about the veracity of that. You know, will you do better deals in or outside? I mean, their current deals, for example, that the UK has access to, they have to renegotiate all of them. And it will take time to renegotiate all of these deals. And how successful will you be with getting the same deal or as good a deal as you had previously. And those things people may think are a matter of opinion. So you're absolutely right. My analogy in the pieces I wrote were about the way that we do live in a globalised world, that you do have to compete internationally, and that the most successful ones are the ones that pull in talent from wherever it may be to fit in to their culture and suit their goals. And it benefits those involved. So I think coming at it from that angle, it's not clear to me that the UK will be as successful outside as inside, that it means a loss of influence and that it's very unusual to be undoing a trade deal as opposed to be doing a trade deal. And if one thinks of it in that way, then the question has got to be, why are you undoing it? And as I said, that then comes down to who are you, who do you think you are, and so on and so forth, which is it's political. But I also have to say that the UK split 50-50. Yeah. But economically, if we can get back into a trade deal with whomever we get back into, that's the important thing. It's making sure we do we don't just stand alone, but we do start working again with everybody. Yes, I think that's the key thing, and and I, and I, and I think that that's the aim of all of those, even those who want to leave. They, they are aiming for that in the end. How long it'll take, whether it'll work, it's in the lap of the gods. My opinion is that it won't be easy. Uh, it'll take many, many years, and maybe that um, there'll be a lot of disappointments along the way, and maybe there'll be agitation to rejoin from those who don't think it was a good idea in the first place. So I don't think this is over by a long way. And what's Brexit? The first stage is the withdrawal agreement. The second stage is the deal, Yeah. i.e. the relationship that one has with the EU, and that's not yet been done. And it certainly won't be easy. One has to listen to the other side. The other side have said that um, the withdrawal agreement is the easy bit, and that's taken three and a half years. Then the hard work really starts after that. And there is still the possibility of crashing out without a deal if it's not done within 12 months, i.e. 31st of December 2020. And they'll have to ask for an extension by July 2020. So uh, there is lots of politics to be played out, I'm afraid, over the coming years. It is not a done deal. From an economics point of view, the stronger the deal is, the bigger the market is is the better thing. Yes, the, the larger the number of trade deals we have, the better it is for us to sell our goods into into more markets in the world, but also to get goods more cheaply from other parts of the world and to remain an open dynamic economy. This is an island, so it lives by trading. So so it, there's a there's a possibility that when it's all over, yes, it may all be better or at least not as bad, but it's going to take a long time together. 
We don't know what be- better is a relative, better or worse is relative. Uh, we, we may not know what that is because that's, that's one of those counterfactuals. We, we can only say it's better if we know what the alternative would have been. And we don't know what the alternative would have been because we're only in the situation that we're in. We can't run the experiment of being in and out at the same time. So, so it'll be a relative thing and it'd be based on perceptions of people arguing about, well, if we'd been in, it would have been like this. Or if we'd been out, maybe it would have been like this. But... So the point is that the majority of economists think that being in is better than being out. But there's maybe 10% or so, and those 10% would argue there's even more than that. But, you know, if one looks at the research which has been done on this, the overwhelming evidence time and time again from all of the, you know, think tanks in the UK gives the same message, which is that the deal that the UK has with the EU is the best deal it could have. Because it isn't just about a trade deal, it's about a single market. And the single market is actually more powerful than the trade deal because it means that you don't have to worry about the way that goods are being produced across the entirety of the market. Your goods can be shipped in and out freely, which is part of the trade aspect to it. But the pricing structure with the standardization of products and so on and so forth, is what makes the EU work so much as a customs area, but also a single market where price signals are sent to those who are making goods, uh, from those that are buying these goods, with the freedom to be able to locate across that entire zone wherever may suit you best, given the intricacies and the supply chain that you're involved in and that's more than just a trade deal and that is hard to disentangle from trade arrangements so being in a single market is more than just being in a trade deal so to replicate the single market within a trade deal would be very difficult correct and we wouldn't because that's where you do have to give up or pool. It's not giving up sovereignty, in my view. You're pooling sovereignty. You've agreed on certain things, but you've all agreed on the same thing. So you've not given up something that to someone else that they haven't given back to you. You've all agreed on this. So you've pooled sovereignty. And so it seems to me that that's going to be, you can't replicate that even if you repeat the same trade deals. Right. Thank you. I've I'm glad we got there in there because it's it's a, it's a very difficult subject which which very few people understand, um, including me. Maybe right. including some of those that want to do it too, or or don't want to do it. Yeah. To be fair. Now we're going to move on from that and uh, put that behind us. I'm going to ask you another tough question in the sense that what do you consider has been your greatest achievement? What's given you the most satisfaction? In your career? So far, uh, Toby, in my career, (laughs) Um, I think it is being able to give what I hope is value for a whole range of businesses, but also the people that I've worked with across different firms over different um, time periods. That's what's given me the biggest satisfaction to know that I have helped to make a difference. Uh, hopefully I've helped to make a difference. I think that's what gives me most satisfaction. Good. Thank you. Now then, another tough one. Well, it's not really. What's the what's the single most important piece of advice, business advice, 
you can give to our podcast listeners? Goodness me, I, I, I don't know if I'm in a position to give anybody advice. Um, I, I don't you, know if, you're more, I, in more I, a position than I am. <laughs> I, I think that I can only speak from my experience, and I think that flexibility, reacting to changing circumstances, not being too inflexible, I think that's the key. Free thinking, but added to a focus on the key essentials of what one is doing. I think that to me is what I've learned the most. You know, firms survive over different economic cycles because they're flexible, because they are able to uh, think laterally or dynamically, whichever way one wants to phrase that. But they respond to circumstances and they change their minds when conditions change and the facts change. They, they remain flexible open to ideas. I think those, that's what I think so is So not key. tunnel vision, it's keeping an eye on what's going on and And, and reacting to it, here. absolutely, yeah. I think that's the key to successful firms, you know, because conditions will always change. They'll never stay the same. You know, we live in a, a universe, not just the world, a universe which is uh, made up of a bunch of different probabilities. And these probabilities change over time and we have to react to changing circumstances. Have a goal in mind, but react to changing circumstances, it seems to me. Yeah, it's true. There's not just one road to get where you want to go. So uh, you may have to take a detour. As the poet says, you know, I came to a fork in the road and I, I chose the road less travelled. People do tend to follow the uh, follow the herd, but, you know, sometimes it's, uh, it's a good thing yeah. to, to go another way. And uh, you're coming in and teaching at the University of Derby as a visiting professor. Um, you're coming and teaching today. What, what, what are you telling our students today? Well, today I'm actually going to be lecturing on the changes that are taking place in the world economy. I'll be touching on demographics and technical change. But unfortunately, I will also be talking about Brexit because I think that's been set by their lecturer as one of their exam questions. <laughs> <laughs> Pros and cons, I think. The pros and cons. Yeah, well, that, that, that's the difficult thing, isn't it? it it's, it's being able to uh, to take a, a view of both sides. Yes, and then they must reach a conclusion, of course, of what come down on one side or the other and give their reasons why. Okay, so you you'll be completely fair. You won't completely objective. Completely objective. Okay, excellent. <laughs> well. Thank you very much, Trevor Williams. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. Absolute pleasure to be here. So, Angela, Trevor talked a lot about big data. That's his area of expertise. Uh, What do you know about big data? I'm learning rapidly, which seems to be a theme in these podcasts, actually. Yeah, I think we get a bit hung up on words like artificial intelligence and big data and all these complex things and what they mean. And they all sound a little bit too technical. And I think many people have this sort of mindset that they are only for big businesses, big tech businesses like Google and Facebook and things like that. And actually, what does it mean to me as a small manufacturing firm, for example, or a retailer on a local high street? So, you know, I think for me, perhaps one of the first important things to sort of just explain is that actually it's not a complicated terminology. And in some respects, it's not really any different from dealing with the spreadsheets that perhaps we use nowadays. The challenge that we do have based on some of the simpler systems that we perhaps already use in terms of data sets for recording customer data or for recording perhaps our sales or things like that is actually... Because of the increase in digital data, 
and the increase in the amount of digital things that we use that generate data. So for example, our smartphones, every time we go on social media, it leaves digital trails and things like that. Um, we have sensors on products, you know, our cars all have sensors on them everywhere. We walk around the high street, there's CCTV cameras everywhere and things like that. And actually there's just so much data. Those traditional spreadsheets that we're used to using just can't cope with the amount of data. So, you know, we're used to dealing with megabytes of data, gigabytes of data, the sorts of sizes of data sets that, that Trevor's talking about that we can now look at and analyse through big data. We're talking petabytes or exabytes. We're talking billions and trillions amount of records. And so it I think that's the concept that people sort of struggle with. So, you know, it's not any different. It's getting your head around that, that the amount of information. Exactly. How do you actually get into that? How do you use that information? But actually, it's not any different from how we would do it already. Um, And I think we probably need to turn our head and, you know, so where are the opportunities? Because actually... We now have access to data that we never had. So actually we could and should be better informed, which is really important for a business because it allows a business to make better informed decisions based on more hardened facts because they can start seeing trends that they could never see before because we can bring different types of data together and make it meaningful. And that is really important in the age that we have because There's so much change and things like that. We're constantly being pressurised to think about how we do things different and things like that. But actually having that assurance and that validity in terms of there is some hard fact data behind it would just help give us that confidence and make us better informed decisions. So what specifically, say if you were a small business and somebody said, oh, you should be using big data to to plan your business. So how, how do you go about that? So there's some really simple ways you can just start thinking about how to use it and things like that, because it is confusing. And actually, I think a lot of businesses don't do it because they're just overwhelmed with what is there and things like that. So first of all, just take it back to your own business. So do a data audit. So think about what information you have that you routinely collate within your business. So it could be customer sales data. There could be some market data. You might get the data from quality as you're tracking quality of products through your own manufacturing processes. You might be able to access information in terms of how your product performs out in the field. So uh, your car is a, a great example of that. Is that the first thing you do when you take your car to the garage now? They plug it into a machine and, and it produces data and almost tells a technician what they need to do. So first of all, just Start listing down what information you have and you can access. Then start thinking about what your goals are. So what do you want to achieve? What do you want to find out? What information is critical or important for you to be able to have in order for you to make progress, whether that be for you to increase your sales, maybe, or reduce the amount of non-conforming parts that you produce? So just think about what are those goals? So in a sense, it's no different to what people have been doing before, what business have been doing before. It's just that the amount of information there is, is greater so they can get more insight. Yeah, exactly. But I think the important thing is don't be overwhelmed. Make sure that what you're looking at is relevant. So relate it back to what you're doing 
and what you want to do in the future and where you want to develop your business. And start small, say perhaps just start looking at customer data, for example, and just start thinking about, well, actually, what data do I, you know, if, if one of my goals is to grow sales in a certain region, then start looking at what information you have that will help you develop a better understanding of consumer buying habits maybe in that region, what your competitors are doing, what customer needs are, what pricing works in that region and things like this. There's all sorts of things that you can find out, understand what information you have, understand where the gaps are in that information, and then start to explore where you can access it. And then you can start looking at that and playing with that and looking at just some basic things like trends. And that will then help you inform future decisions and future plans and where you focus your efforts and things. So just do that. And then you can start to develop and grow that. So once you've understood that, then you can perhaps, you might want to refine it a little bit more or you might want to tweak it a little bit because it's not quite giving you the right information that will allow you to make a decision. The way you're talking, it's something, going back to something Trevor said about there are new roles to be created because that sounds like, that sounds like a full-time job. Oh, yes, quite, yeah. yeah, quite definitely. And this is where perhaps your local university can help you. At the University of Derby, we've got a data science research centre uh, and it's full of clever, I think we used to call them mathematicians, but we now call them data scientists because they are, it's that sort of skill who can analyse information, collate information, put it into formats and things like that. There is a lot of help out there, actually. It is recognised as one of those new emerging sectors, one of those new emerging roles where the UK has a, a real sort of USP and core competence in terms of data science. And so it and because it is so new to businesses that the government through Innovate UK and its knowledge transfer partnership scheme, businesses, it's one of those areas where we're getting quite a lot of businesses can access funding to take on a recent graduate to help them develop in this area and develop their new processes or a greater understanding in terms of how they can use the data and exploit it within their business. Because ultimately, whether the data indicates that they need to be developing new markets or changing the way that they manage their manufacturing process or things like that is innovation. And knowledge transfer partnership funding is primarily funding to support innovation within businesses. So, you know, certainly if that's an area that you're interested in, if you're looking at things like that, either go and look at the Univet UK website, go and talk to your local university and understand how you can get support. Thanks, Angela. One thing we, we did talk about um, that we will go mention briefly was Brexit with Trevor. But we talked about being adaptable and businesses needed to change the way, the way they approach things. And that comes into that, isn't it? It's the way the world is changing. Big data is a new, new way of approaching information. Brexit, we will have to adapt to change to what happens. Yeah, and, and change is nothing new, I don't think, to anyone now. And, uh, you know, I think even our forefathers, the Industrial Revolution and things like that, I think the important thing is thinking about how we as businesses adapt to that change and how we build a resilience in our business model and our workforce in order to respond to that. And actually, with the concepts of things like 
big data and just the amount of information that is now at our fingertips through going onto the internet and things like that. Uh, the world is very much a smaller place. And, and so we can be better informed. And actually, as long as we've got a good plan, and as long as we've got good management information, and there's no excuse now for people not having information, they need to take the time to access it and research and things like that in their busy lives. Actually, we can make some good informed decisions. And as long as we do that, and we have a mindset and we have a workforce with a mindset that is agile enough to respond should changes need to occur, then I think businesses are in a pretty good place. But that, that is the whole thing about the new mindset, adapting to change and a new type of workforce, which is also important because we, we are going to have to be looking at how we change the way we work, how businesses plan, how businesses structure. Yeah, exactly. And Trevor talks about the importance of diversity, inclusion in UK businesses. And in some respects, this is this is really important for our future workforce. And we need to think about how some of the underrepresented groups who currently exist, particularly in some of our more traditional sectors like engineering and construction, manufacturing, how we actually support and encourage people into those sectors because in many respects they have the skills that they're looking for they have the values and that adaptable mindset uh, and all those soft skills that we talk about so frequently that are needed but quite often what we don't provide them is the infrastructure the support infrastructure or the business model to allow them to move into that sector or consider a career in that sector and in many respects we don't have the role models and that's really important as well is that people even more so nowadays want to be working with people like me because work and leisure time is just so intertwined now is that working for a company that has the same values as I have, working in a company where I feel I fit, where I see myself developing a career in there and having, you know, having forming friendships, for example, out of that business is really important to people. Do you have any any examples of, of what you mean by this flexibility and approach and the okay. new business model? Okay, so let's, let's think about one that is increasingly becoming more important. So we are an aging population. There is an increasing proportion of people particularly women, but not necessarily so, who are unpaid carers for um, for parents, for neighbours, for friends. And actually, they have to fit that around a, a career. So, for example, they may not want to work full time. They may not want to work fixed hours. Now, does that preclude them from being a leader in a business, for example, or undertaking a professional role within a business? You know, how can we flex what we do and how we support these people and how we organise our staff to ensure that we can bring in these skilled people into the organisation? Depending on the business, obviously, technology is such these days that working from home or 
you know, working remotely in various different ways. Yeah, exactly. And and yet again, there's another one where we need to look outside our own business. So I was recently, I was I was having a conversation with someone in in the north of the region, and they were expressing frustration that they couldn't recruit staff into a role. And this was a this wasn't this was a fairly low skilled role. So I think there was some surprise that actually they couldn't find people. And actually when they looked into it in detail, there was one factor that precluded most of the people who would have liked to have gone into that role from doing so. And that was because many of them didn't drive and the buses didn't start running until half an hour after they had to be at work. So the employer could then go back, have a look and say, well, actually, can we change the shift pattern to better fit in with the transport infrastructure that most of our employees require in order to get to work? And the answer was yes. Interestingly, they they started getting applications. So sometimes you just need to look and you need to understand where am I going to source my workforce from and what do I need to do to encourage them? But we've always had people starting at this time. This is how we've always done it. We need to change that way of thinking. Yes, yeah, indeed. And it goes back to other interviews where we've we've talked about creating an environment where we have the right people in the business who have the similar visions and values as us. We talked about staff retention and work-life balance and things like that. And all these things come into play when we you know, when we recruit people and we, we really need to start challenging ourselves and thinking about I don't think in any business is deliberately discriminatory but actually I just think we quite often just run things as we've always run them without really thinking about if we did things differently would we attract a different workforce who could help us take this business in its future direction. Well, I'd like to thank again Trevor Williams for joining us on our Inspired Business podcast. You can catch up with Trevor on LinkedIn or you can go to his website, which is trevorfwilliams.co.uk. And of course, I'd like to thank Angela Tooley, our business expert who helped us navigate through uh, another area of business, big data. Thank you very much, Angela. A pleasure as always. Next time, we'll be talking to Abby Burns of Dali Dance Productions. You've been listening to Inspired Business, a podcast from the University of Derby telling amazing and inspirational stories from businesses in Derby, Derbyshire and beyond. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating or review and tell a friend who might also like to listen. Also, if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of the show, please get in touch. You can find contact details and more information about the series at derby.ac.uk forward slash inspired business. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch up with you again very soon.